Judgment Studios. Okay, so you might not get it first, but this is about the forces of nature. But stick with me. Stick with me. Back in the day, I'm living in Japan. I have this job. It starts around 6 p.m. every Thursday, practicing English with a group of 10 beautiful young women, each more awesome than the next. And what we really do is just gossip about whoever's not in the room. Sometimes we gossip in English, mostly nobody bothers. And then the real fun begins. I call my buddy Darren on the company credit card. These beautiful ladies take us out to various bars and restaurants where we eat and laugh and drink and dance and play all night long. And that's a job. The very best job ever for which I am paid money. And it's fantastic, truly. So what do I do? What do I do? I get wind of a film project. The director says, I'd be perfect for the starring role in his new gangster movie. Of course. Why wouldn't an American black man be perfect for the role in a Japanese gangster film? He tells me, I just got to move down to southern Japan for a few months for something called pre-production. Oh, yeah? Pre-production, huh? All right, okay. Hollywood lingo, pre-production. No problem. I quit my job with the gossip and the drinks and the dancing. And I go down to follow the dream I didn't know I had of being in a gangster Yakuza flick. And what I don't understand at first is that this movie is not just about gangsters. It's financed by gangsters. And by finance, I mean the gangsters, they say they're going to pay us, but they don't pay us. And finally, finally, after sleeping on the floor of a cramped apartment with nine other suckers, living on ramen noodles for several weeks, I bail. I go back to Kyoto to beg for my old job with the gossip, the dancing, the paychecks. But in my absence, a new guy. He's filled my role. He's kind of a hippie. Long hair, beads, big smile. He's handsome. Super nice. And when I tell him I've returned for my job, he laughs in my face. Your job, man. This is my job. I pray to the goddess for this. Mother Nature has blessed me. This is the best job ever. can't argue with them. So I leave. No movie, no job, no prospects. Certain I've broken a fundamental law of the universe. Because his mother nature, she blessed me too. She told me not to follow a bunch of shady characters off to do who knows what. But I ignored her. They like to think I like to think that those whispers from the natural world around us only apply when we're standing in a river 
or climbing a mountain. But maybe she's got something to say no matter where we are. And that's why today, on Snap Judgment, as a public service, we proudly present Mother Nature. My name is from Washington. Please, please don't send me any resumes because that job I mentioned earlier, that's no longer available when you're listening to Snap Judgment. We begin in Sinaloa, Mexico. On the edge of the Pacific Ocean, there's a small fishing town without a single traffic light and hardly any paved streets. Reporter Esther Honig takes us to an empty beach, shrouded in fog. Snap judgment. donde revienta la ola esa donde revientan de ahí para allá había callo de hacha toda esa área todo, 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 todo. in jeans and flip-flops Belin Delgado points to an area on the horizon where he found something that would change his life and the lives of everyone he knew pues la verdad uno, uno, uno de los mejores capítulos de mi vida fue vivirlo well, the truth is, it was one of the best chapters of my life. Para mi familia. For my family. Para mi pueblo. For my town. It was one evening, 15 years ago. Belin sat with a good friend out in front of his home, and they chatted about the catch that day. We'd send people out to fish and they wouldn't bring back anything. In fact, many would say, what's going on? And it's like, well, who knows? There aren't any fish. There was a time when the red snapper and sea bass were over five feet long. And the schools of fish were so massive. There'd be so many hundreds of them splashing and jumping around. It looked like the ocean was boiling. But the truth was, the catch had been lousy for a long time now. It's really sad when a species that the fishermen rely on disappears. It's a punch in the gut to those who make most of their money from fishing. They're always the most affected. That night, as Belen sat on the porch, he told his friend something he'd recently heard from another fisherman. This fisherman worked on a large shrimping boat, and he did what he always does. He dropped the nets and dragged them across the ocean floor. But when he pulled them up, he noticed something strange caught in the webbing. One and then another calla de hacha fell out. Two shiny black shellfish called callo de hacha. 
Sí, el, 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 el cayo es una... El cayo es una de las especies que... Let's put it this way. It is one of the most expensive things you can catch. It's named for its large black shell in the shape of an axe. Hacha means hatchet in Spanish. Pry the shells open and inside is a large white scallop that's considered a delicacy. We were surprised by the size of this type of cayo. No one had ever found this shellfish in these areas. But they were enormous, huge, and they live in shallow and deep waters. A few weeks later, when the shrimping boat caught another cayo de hacha, they brought it to Berlin. Now he was convinced this wasn't just a coincidence. There must be mountains of cayo de hacha down there. And he got the feeling this could be big money. There was a risk I could be wrong. Many fishermen told me that it wasn't true, that I was just making it up. And that bothered me. But I felt like, yes, there is cayo de hacha. For me, it did exist because it's very hard to catch cayo de hacha with a net. He knew the first thing he had to do was figure out just how much cayo de hacha there was. And that was no small task. He'd have to reach the ocean floor some 70 feet below the surface. And so we started looking for a diver. But no one in town knew how to dive this deep. Delin called around until he found a guy all the way out in Baja, California. There are people there who are experienced in this. They dive and fish for mollusks and cayo de hacha. The man was in his mid-40s. He'd been diving all his life, and he seemed up to the task. We asked him, how much will you charge us to do this job? And he said, how about we make a deal? If there's cayo, I won't charge you for the trip. But you'll give me a chance to fish some of it. If there's nothing, you'll pay for my trip there and back. Okay, está bien. So he came. But Belén also wanted to keep this a secret. Let's be discreet so that this doesn't turn into complete chaos. Everything must be done carefully. I said, you know what? If there are cayo, don't tell anyone. If there was as much cayo down there as Belén thought, he knew he had to keep it under control. La idea de los pescadores es, the way fishermen think is, I'm just going to fish, because there will come a day when I can't fish anymore. My brother-in-law got on the boat, and then the diver got on, and he set up his air compressor. It's a machine that uses gasoline. It pumps. This guy didn't have a tank of oxygen or a wetsuit. He'd built his own equipment, an old air compressor that sputtered like a lawnmower and pumped oxygen through a plastic hose into a diving mask. In blue jeans and white rubber boots, he dove off the side of the boat with a large mesh sack. The other men waited. An hour passed. Andale, que cuando llegó... And when the diver came up, the surprise. He had a hundred pounds of cayo. 
le dio. ¿Cómo vistes? I said to him, what did it look like down there? Están sentados ustedes en una mina de oro. You all are sitting on a mine of gold, he says. Donde te pares, hay callo. Wherever you step, there's callo. Ay, Dios de mi vida, dije yo. The men had stumbled upon a massive colony of shellfish, just off the town shore that covered a stretch of the ocean floor 30 miles long and a mile wide. It was worth millions of dollars. In the evening, the men met up in secret at the home of Boleyn's brother-in-law, where they hid their catch inside two large coolers. There were these enormous callos, and I grabbed one and I ate it. I ate another one. That's why I have high cholesterol. <laughs> the large coins of tender white meat tasted slightly salty and sweet, and they were so fresh they practically melted in his mouth. They were the finest callo de hacha that you could find. Now, Belen needed some way to protect the cayo, and he knew he couldn't do it on his own. So the next day, he got in his green pickup truck and drove to the federal fishing authorities two hours away in Mazatlan. He walked into the large office building, carrying the cooler filled with his deep-sea treasure, and asked to speak to a director. I said, this is the cayo de hacha that's in Tecapan. And he was shocked. And that's from just one boat, I said. We haven't said anything no one besides us knows. That's why we came here to see you. What do we want? That this doesn't get out of control. He needed the authorities to step in, to issue permits for local fishermen only, and to impose quotas limiting how much each person could catch in a day. And he knew it could work, not just because he was a fisherman, he was also a biologist. No nada más sabía capturarlos. Well, I didn't just know how to catch them and sell them, no. As one of nine siblings, Blin was the first in his family to go to college to study fish biology. De ahí fue... That's when I became interested in studying something to protect where we live, to take care of it and to teach the fishermen to protect this resource. At the meeting, authorities assured Berlin they'd look into it. And he walked away thinking he'd gotten the ball rolling on a plan. Now, he just had to keep this under wraps for a little longer. The problem was he'd already agreed to let the diver from Baja fish Cayo. So the next day, Berlin's brother-in-law and the diver spent all morning pulling up Cayo. Venía un pescador. A fisherman paddled over and he found them fishing and he saw all the Cayo they had. Turns out a bunch of people on shore had seen them. And now they watched as the diver jumped off the side of the lone fiberglass boat and came back up with bag after bag of shellfish. And as fishermen, we like to talk. So he went back to Teacapan and told everyone what he saw. By the time the diver's boat made it back to shore, all the fishermen in town were there waiting to see it for themselves. I said, that's it. The bomb's gone off. What are we going to do? 
Kayoriacha season, and everyone in Teakupan wants a piece of the action. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Mother Nature episode. In the seaside town of Teacupan, where fisherman Belen Delgado, he's just discovered millions of dollars worth of an expensive shellfish called Cayo de Acha. But in a small town like this, secrets don't stay secret for long. Step judgment. By the time the diver's boat made it back to shore, all the fishermen in town were there waiting to see it for themselves. I said, that's it? The bomb's gone off? What are we going to do? Almost immediately, everyone in town, some of whom had never fished in their lives, teachers, politicians, ranchers, bought boats and hired divers. And men who didn't know how to dive were signing up for the job. There was money to be made. And everyone wanted in. There was a doctor, a good friend of the fisherman. He bought three boats. He didn't even need the money. It made me so mad, so angry to see this type of person take advantage and they could give it them. Before the fishing authorities could do anything, more and more boats were out on the water, collecting hundreds of pounds of shellfish each day. And almost overnight, the town came back to life. People who were used to earning $10 a day were now earning 100 or more, selling their catch on the black market to vendors for fancy restaurants up and down the Pacific coast. Let's just say there was a lot of money. People bought cars and as much beer as they wanted. They had big weddings and parties. If they saw you walking by, they just offer you a plate of cayo de hacha, which is something we never ate. And now we can eat all we wanted. We felt proud. We felt really important because during this time, the economy of Tiacapan, I tell you, grew by 1,000%. Belin started fishing too. And since the authorities still hadn't stepped in, he decided to set a quota for himself. I had four boats I sent in two. I didn't want to send in more boats because I didn't want to overfish the area. I was doing it on my own to say we can regulate ourselves. We don't have to destroy ourselves or destroy this resource. I wanted to set an example. Out of all the boats in town, just three sat unused, lying on the beach, and two of them were Belen's. Everyone's like, send them all out, send them all out. And I was like, no, wait. A lot of people probably thought you're so stupid. What are you doing? There's money to be made. Two months had passed since the discovery of Cao de Acha when researchers who'd studied the size of the colony came to present their findings. 
Some 300 fishermen in their white rubber boots and baseball caps gathered at the town's boardwalk to hear them talk. The researchers said that the colony of Cayo, if taken care of, had the potential to last us 10 years. 10 years. But Belin knew that at the rate they were going, it wasn't going to last half that. He decided to stand up and speak. Gentlemen, we have to take care of the shellfish. We have to limit how much we catch. What do we gain by fishing 200 pounds each if they're not going to give us a good price? Let's only fish 100 pounds per boat so they pay us a higher price and the cayo will last longer. He knew other places in Mexico use self-imposed quotas to protect their fish populations. A lot of them said, no. Why use quotas? If we can fish 200 pounds, why would we fish less? Many laughed. I said, we're going to wipe them out. It was hard enough dealing with the local fishermen. And then outsiders started pouring in from hours away. People from other cities, from Chametla to Mazatlán. They started to come with their boats. It was mayhem. TV reporters came and they looked for us and asked what, where, and how. Is it true? The headlines called it White Gold Fever, or the cocaine of the sea. The story of the tiny town with an unbelievable fortune spread across the country. The entire world was talking about Teacapan. Teacapan, a vibrant town, a blessed town. The number of boats doubled and then tripled. Soon, there were close to 300. The locals tried to chase them off, and fistfights broke out. That's when the pirates started. The fishermen would come. They were pirate fishermen. They would come and fish in the middle of the night. The pirates launched their boats from miles away so no one could see them entering at Teacapan's beach. Then they'd speed off into the dark with their catch. At that moment, I called the fishermen to a meeting to look for a way to keep more outsiders from coming in. And you know what a few of them told me? There's enough for everyone. They can come. That's what they said. I was so mad with my own people. They just didn't want to understand. We were able to keep the prices steady, but those fishermen from the outside sold it cheap and kept undercutting our prices. With prices so low, now everyone had to fish even more kayo, just earn the same amount of money as before, and the scuba divers had to dive much deeper. Because there was no more cayo in the shallow water, the further down they went, the more cayo they found. And that's when we had our first tragedy. A diver went so deep that he got the bends. To save the scuba diver, the closest hyperbaric chamber was two hours away and the town had no ambulance. Belin grabbed the keys to his truck. Get in! I drove him to Esquinapa. I called ahead. The ambulances are waiting for him. I helped him in. He managed to make it. 
But other divers were not so lucky. Many died from the bends. In one case, the hose attached to a homemade air compressor burst while a man was underwater. There wasn't any movement on his line. And when they pulled him up, he was already dead. They brought back his body in the boat, and honestly, it was a scary thing to see. Now, there was an even bigger fear that more divers could die. Seven divers wound up dying for us because we hired them. The moment came when I, like, how do you say? I almost threw in the towel. Nothing could stop the white gold fever. Not the authorities, not the promise of more money, or even death. Actually, I would go to sleep and wake up thinking about this. I was filled with anxiety. I was really worried about my workers. He was thinking about the men he hired to take out his boats and fish. They were missing out on making money from the Cayo. Am I wrong for not letting him work? One morning, after sending out just two of his boats, Belén stood on the beach and looked at the hundreds of other boats out on the water, all fishing Cayo. He walked over to the two boats he'd kept back. They'd been lying belly up in the sun this whole time. And he thought about what to do. This is not going to have a happy ending. There's not going to be any more Cayo. Well, whatever. <laughs> Let's finish this because the last guy in the water is going to miss out. I hired some divers, I got my workers, and I sent out my last two boats. Let's go. Everyone in the water. I felt that I failed. But when they went out to fish and they brought a good amount of cayo de hacha, I think I felt better. This had to happen. My workers were happy. Their families were happy. I guess I also have to be happy. By now, the price for cayo had sunk even lower. But with all four of his boats working, there was still money to be made. Five tons. No, perdón, no, no excuse me. Seven tons. De cayo de hacha. Imagínate Imagine seven tons of cayo de hacha multiplied by 200 boats. Era un mundo. It was a world. That year, my daughter turned 15. So I said, come on. Let's go, let's get those callos. We're going to give my daughter a quinceañera. Actually, we threw the party here in the backyard. We opened the back gate and welcomed anyone who wanted to come. Everybody came. The place was super full. There were like 400 guests. Tables crammed around the dance floor. And at each one was a centerpiece, made out of Cayo de Hacha shells. It was Belin's idea, a plastic swan head with shells glued to either side, like wings. In fact, it was one of the last good moments. That night, Belin danced and partied until the sun rose the next day. 
llegó el momento de que pues también me sentí culpable de lo mismo. I felt guilty about what happened. Me dieron ganas de, de olvidarme de todo. I wanted to forget everything. Y seguir así como estaban. And go back to the way things were. Sí me olvidaba un día. I would forget for a day and then the next it would all come back. La frustración It de, was de so frustrating no that no one had understood. Qué barbaridad. It was just so foolish. And do you think that there could be Cayo in this area after 15 years? I think there must be Cayo now. Let's assume they aren't big, but there must be some. There must be. Thank you, Belen, and everyone in Teacapan for sharing this story with us. The story is produced in collaboration with FERN, the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative journalism outlet. Big thanks to Brent Cunningham and Sam Fomarts at FERN. And FERN has a new podcast. It's called Hot Farm. Over four episodes, host Eve Abrams talks to farmers across the Midwest about the reality of climate change and what they are doing or could be doing to fight it can find Hot Farm wherever you get your podcast. The voice acting for this piece was done by Leonel Garza. The original score for the story was by Renzo Gorio. It was edited by Nancy Lopez with production support from John Facile. The story was produced and reported by Esther Honig. Snatch Touch returns. Fire. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Mother Nature episode. My name is Gun Washington, and today we're introducing you to a podcast with suspense, with drama, with tearful reunions, with heroes, and it's all true. It's called Escape from Mammoth Pool, and it tells the story of the death-defying rescue of hundreds of campers from within a raging fire in California. It all took place one weekend, September 2020, at a sparkling mountain lake called Mammoth Pool Reservoir. The best part? 
it's got a happy ending. All 242 people and 16 dogs made it out alive. That is not a spoiler because the best part of the story is how they did it. Snap Judgment. When you're in a situation where you think your life's going to end, everything's going to just slow down completely. We like to think of time as a constant, as steady, unfluctuating, infallible. But in some situations, like if you think you're about to die, time can bend and flex. It felt forever, but it was about 25 minutes. It can even seem to stop. It felt like (laughs) forever. It felt like an eternity. It just felt like eternity, you know? I'm Carrie Klein, and this is Escape from Mammoth Pool by KVPR, the true story of how hundreds of campers at an isolated reservoir survived one of the fastest-moving wildfires in California's recorded history. In last week's episode, we left our three families around lunchtime on September 5th, 2020. It was the Saturday of Labor Day weekend, and it was also the day the Creek Fire would catch everyone by surprise. At 10 a.m. that morning, it was just a blip on the radar, around 600 acres in size. But by dinnertime, it had exploded to 45,000 acres. It devoured the 10 miles to Mammoth Pool in less than 24 hours. In briefings and interviews, fire officials would later call the blaze aggressive, unprecedented, and in a class by itself. With the fire closing in on the lake, these three families were navigating the throng of panic and chaos as they got ready to evacuate the campground. In this episode, the 10 minutes that took an eternity. When we last saw Carla Carcamo, she and her family had been watching flames tumble down the hillside. They were stalling packing their trucks while counting the seconds until her siblings and cousins would return from a hike. They wondered how long they could wait. But as Carla made her way to her brother's tent to pack up his things, the decision was made for them. All I heard was like a a snap. It was a tree coming down. And then like a shh. And it just hit the floor. I ran. I have no idea how I ran that fast. It was a crystallizing moment, because as much as Carla ached for her brother and sister, other people had been accounted for. Carla's parents, young cousins, a disabled aunt. For their sakes, it was time to go. We had to. We had to leave them. Because it was either you stay and you burn up, or you go and you leave them. They had heard that the road out of the mountains was blocked, and so the only way to go was further into the Sierra, toward the lake, two narrow, winding miles of dirt road that dead-end at the water. Carla white-knuckled the drive with her mother and aunt in her Chevy Silverado. I don't remember if I was crying just because I wanted to not do that for my mom, but I do, me in my head, I just kept saying, the Lord is our shepherd, everything. And I couldn't remember the whole prayer. All I kept saying is, 
the Lord is our shepherd. He will protect us. Nothing's going to happen to us. I said, God is great. God is with us. And I was just trying to like control my, my emotions, you know? Across the campground, Alex Teramonti was panicking. After she and her husband Raul Reyes made it back to their campsite to pack, she kept calm by helping buddies, a couple with a nine-month-old baby, a friend having trouble leaving his brand-new DJ equipment behind. But once she and Raul were alone in their truck, Alex was floored. She was having a, a moment, I guess. Panic at the straight. Once we're in the car and we're going, I just let it all go. Yeah. I started screaming, crying. I just let it all go. She and Raul had seen the flames over the road out of the mountains. So, like Carla, who had likely left earlier, they knew the only way out was toward the lake, a dirt road made more dangerous by the thick smoke. Under normal circumstances, the drive took about 10 minutes. But just after they took off, traffic came to a dead stop. Raul, who was driving, says they could have been there 30 seconds or 2 minutes or 10. When you're in a situation where you think your life's going to end, Everything's going to just slow down completely. But he didn't want Alex to know he was worried. And I was just trying to calm her down, like, it's going to be okay. As a matter of fact, I'm going to need you right now. He gave Alex a task, call 911. It was one of the few calls that would make it through to the Madera County Sheriff's Office. Once I had that task to do, I knew that, like, that was my job, that was my focus. When the call connected, she was calm. We're trying to leave the area. We're trapped. Um, We are literally, we have people running to the lake, like on foot, running to the lake as fast as they can because there's fire everywhere. She laid out the situation. There's just a lot of kids. How many? Families. We have over 30 families here. Do you see flames from where you are right now? Every, in every direction, yes. The dispatcher told Alex what they already knew, that the only safety would be at the water. But she stayed on the line, letting Alex talk and reminding her to breathe. Traffic began moving again, and as they wound their way through smoke and embers, Alex found another focus. She and Raul began to pick up passengers in their Dodge truck, hikers who were bursting out of trails or running along the road. Hop on, hop on. Hop on if you need to, hop on. Alex crawled onto the front center console, and they crammed into the cab, piled into the truck bed, and hung on to the open doors. All this as flames closed in. At one point, the truck even crawled over part of a tree that had fallen across the road. How many people do you have in your car? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I don't even know how many people yeah, are in the back of my truck. Just get as many people as you can. I'm sure this is against the law. <laughs> against the law? Alex even cracked a joke. But she got tense again. She could feel the heat from the flames inside the truck. And suddenly, after eight minutes, the call dropped out. Oh, gosh. Oh, this whole thing's on fire. Alex? Meanwhile, Vicky Castro and her husband, Rolando Rosales, were also on the road. They, their two kids, and their niece and nephew were a few minutes ahead of Alex and Raul. But on their way to the lake, a car ahead of them suddenly just stopped. Its trailer had fallen off. Traffic was at a standstill, and the flames were moving in. (laughs) 
it was basically you can turn left or right. When we turned right, the fire was about 10 feet to the left of us. A family in another car ahead of them panicked. Vicky and Rolando saw them jump out and start running for the lake. With the fire on their tail, Vicky made a plan. When I saw the fire, four cars behind us, I told the kids, get ready to run. They'd run as a family, but when she opened the doors, her nephew panicked and just took off down the road. The other three kids bolted after him. Vicky was wrestling to save their terrified dog, a husky puppy named Loki. That's what took the longest, to try to get the dog out, and that's when I lost them, like, in two minutes. By the time Vicky started running into the smoke with Loki in her arms, she couldn't see her kids anywhere. Rolando was still in the driver's seat, trying to maneuver their truck and trailer around the abandoned car. But there were too many obstacles for such a large vehicle. A steep slope on one side, trees and boulders on the other. He had to leave it all behind. Now, the whole family was running toward the lake, but separately. Vicky had no idea how far the water was, and she hadn't seen any cars make it past the gridlock. I had given up. Just at that point, I was just standing there, and I'm like, I can't go to the front of me because it was basically smoke and fire. You could see, like, the flames kind of reaching out to the road. But some vehicles did make it through, and out of the haze, a truck materialized. It was their friends Raul and Alex. And Rolando was there in the truck bed. They were reunited, but only the two of them. I started panicking more because I still hadn't found the kids. And I was like, if I'm in a truck and I pass them, we're not going to have time to stop and pick them up. Alex ordered Vicky to get in. So she did, handed Loki to Rolando and hung off of one of the open doors. Buffeted by heat and smoke, she shouted for the kids all the way to the lake. In the back, Rolando lost his grip on Loki. Someone pulled our dog away from my husband, like yanked him out of his arms and said, like, basically, like, F your dog and let his leash go. And our dog still tried to run behind the truck for like two minutes, but he couldn't. He was, he got scared. And that's the last time we saw the dog. By around 3 p.m., after harrowing drives, all these families made it to the lake, where scores of people were already congregating. Mercifully, the water levels were low, which left a wide swath of dry lake bed below the tree line for Carla and everyone else to park. I have never been so happy to see that there's not enough water in there for it to be at full capacity. The water wasn't up high, and we were, it, was, it looked kind of like a little beach area. Once they emerged from the smoldering forest, cars eased down the boat launch onto the sand and inched as close to the water as they could. When Alex and Raul left their campsite, it was only the two of them and their dog in the truck. But when they reached the lake, around 17 people climbed out, reuniting with the friends and family who'd been waiting for them. Vicky and Rolando got out as fast as they could. We didn't ask her to stop. Me and Rolando just jumped out of the truck and we were like, okay, now we need to look for the kids. It was Rolando who spotted them first. I can't explain what I felt at that moment. Everybody was crying. That was the happiest moment in my life, to be honest. They find out later the four kids had caught rides with family friends. At the lake, they'd kept their eyes glued on the boat launch, hoping the next car to arrive would be carrying Vicky and Rolando. Everyone at the lake had escaped a campground going up in flames. And many began to feel glimmers of hope, 
even as the conditions worsened. The smoke choked out the sun, turning late afternoon to nighttime. From the inside of her truck, air conditioning blasting, Alex watched the fire make its final push toward the lake. It was kind of light when we had first gotten there and we were like finding where to park. And then all of a sudden, like the sky went black. That's when it really felt like the true fire was coming through. You could feel and hear the wind whipping across the vehicle. You could hear and see the embers flying everywhere, hitting trucks and trailers and stuff like that that were all parked at the lake and just like exploding. But she felt safe in her truck, away from the tree line. She began to wonder how long they'd be here and if they had enough food. Meanwhile, Carla couldn't sit still. She paced from car to car, checking in on relatives, keeping herself busy. If she stopped to think, she'd remember the hikers, including her brother and sister, still hadn't emerged from the flames. Time passed by, I don't know, I want to say like an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. And every time more time passed by, it was like I lost more hope. I lost more hope of them coming. But where Carla was losing steam, Vicky was gaining it. The six members of her family and dozens of others had taken refuge in the water. They'd waded in up to their waists, and she was shielding the kids from flying embers with a foam pad that she'd caught in the wind. The kids were in tears, crying that they were going to die. But Vicky, despite the rumbling flames, their missing dog, and the terror in her children's eyes, she had faith that somewhere beyond the fire, there were people who cared, people who were doing everything they could to get them out. And at that point, I was like, you know what, this is not where this ends. Like, we're not done. That's not the way that all of us end up. want you to know, Snappers, that Carla's brother, sister, and cousins were eventually found, and they did make it out alive. So did Vicky and Rolando's dog, Loki. But if you want to learn how, you can listen to the rest of Escape from Mammoth Pool. It's produced by Carrie Klein of KVPR in Fresno, California. More information on their website, kvpr.org, where you can find it on your favorite podcast app. It's not the end of the show. It's the beginning of the journey. Because if you need more story in your world, if you want to put yourself in someone else's shoes, the Snap Judgment Podcast awaits. You can even shout at your phone device, Siri, Alexa, play the Snap Judgment Podcast and don't tell me you don't understand what I'm saying. Upgrade yourself. If you want the story behind the story, along with 
random thoughts, cat pictures, rants, and links to UFO sightings, follow me on the Twitter. Snap is brought to you by the team that loves a good camping trip. Except for the Uber producer, Mark Ristich, the only four seasons he enjoys is the hotel. There's Nancy Lopez, Pat Masini Miller, Regina Beriaco, David Exume, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shana Sheely, Taylor Decott, Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, Davey Kim, Bo Walsh, Manny Nguyen. And this, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could drink the last drop of the orange juice from the carton, put it right back in the refrigerator for someone else to deal with. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PR.